you would, turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 32, Isaiah 32. We've been going through the book of Isaiah. We're in the prophecy of woes, or prophecies of woes. And uh, this is part 10, because we're just not very fast going through these. Uh, not that we want to dwell on them, but they kind of have a pattern and... If you're like me, when I first read through, I didn't see the pattern, but as time went on, as we studied, the pattern became more obvious. The first two chapters are 28 and 29, and the woes had to do with the foolish leaders and the false counsel. And it was a little bit subtle. The false counsel was the idea of, let's depend on Egypt to protect us from Assyria. And then we got into the real proposed solution and the proposed solution was now bluntly stated let's go to Egypt and that was in 30 and 31 and 32 and 33 Isaiah is saying the true solution the one real solution is we need to trust Messiah and really that's the issue throughout the book of Isaiah who are you going to trust the people around you, the circumstances, are you going to trust God? And Isaiah paints the picture of the true solution. And he starts out in chapter 32, and we covered the first eight verses last week. And uh, I kind of summarized it. Rule, righteous rulers, fools, and the churl, or the scoundrel, whichever way you want to look at that. And what he did is he contrasted the righteous rulers with these other two groups. And when you looked at what they did, the righteous rulers would protect, they would refresh. They basically looked over and were not trying to dictate to those that they ruled over but rather they were trying to do what was good and right for them whereas the fools they basically denied God and they would propose things that would lead people away from God and then the churl was basically I like brother Paul's comment the scammers uh, they kind of came in and they tried to take what wasn't theirs and so we kind of looked at that but to sum up those eight verses I would say during the millennial kingdom there will not be corruption and probably I should put in government and only the righteous will be in authority and that was what Isaiah was painting the picture for us here's the righteous they're in authority they protect they refresh and oh here's the bad people and the bad rulers, and the bad rulers aren't going to be called noble anymore. They aren't going to be called generous. They're basically going to be called for what they are. And I was thinking about the millennial kingdom. We're going to have two main people groups running around in the millennial kingdom. Anyone remember what two groups will be running around? Well, that's one way of cutting it, saved and unsaved, but there's another group that's going to be there. Which group's going to be there that's not going to? You're going to have the church, you're going to have the children. Okay, you're going to have the church. We're going to rule and reign with Christ. How will he have this righteous government? It'll be simple. Those with glorified bodies aren't going to have the sin nature that our present bodies have yes it will and i was thinking i wonder how that's going to work for those that have the bodies like we do today um where you can't pull the wool over someone's eyes because they're in such tight communion with messiah because they're his church they're his bride they're in glorified bodies and so how will this be accomplished in these first eight verses? It's going to be real simple. The church is going to rule and reign, and they're going to be righteous. 
because they're going to have glorified bodies. Um, that's why when it talks in Psalms about him ruling with a rod of iron, he'll have complete control and we'll see justice and no corruption, which is going to be totally different than what we see today. And so with that being said, he described a little bit of that future kingdom. But to get to that environment, that ideal environment, he's going to describe that there's some judgment that's needed. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. And so if you look in your Bibles at chapter 32, we're going to start in verse 9. And we're going to read to the end of the chapter. It says, Rise up, ye women, they're at ease, hear my voice. Ye careless daughters, give ear unto my speech. Many days and years shall, be, shall ye be troubled, ye careless women. For the vintage shall fail, and the gathering shall not come. Tremble, ye women that are at ease, be troubled, ye careless ones. Strip you and make you bare, and gird sackcloth upon your loins. They shall lament for the teats, for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine. Upon the land of my people shall come up thorns and briars. Yea, upon all the houses of joy in the joyous city. Because the palaces shall be forsaken, the multitude of the city shall be left. The forts and towers shall be dens forever, a joy of wild asses, a pasture of flocks, until the Spirit be poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness be a fruitful field, and the fruitful field be counted for a forest. Then judgment shall dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness remain in the fruitful field, and the work of righteousness shall be peace. And the effect of righteousness, quietness, and assurance forever. And my people shall dwell in a peaceful habitation, in a sure dwelling, in a quiet resting place. When it shall hail, coming down on the forest, and the city shall be low in a low place. Blessed are you that sow beside all waters, that sendeth forth thither the feet of the oxen and the asses. I don't know about you, but on first reading, it's like, I don't get this. He starts out addressing two groups of people. And I mentioned last week, I really don't think Isaiah is prejudiced against women. There were several comments and commentaries about why that's mentioned. I can't say for certain, but what I do know for certain, we have a God that's no respecter of persons. And this is his word that's through the prophet. And so he's not biased against women, but he uses women in this case to illustrate two groups of people. And so the first thing I'd like us to look at in this passage is who are the two groups of people that the prophet's addressing? There's characteristics about them. And it could be one group with just two different characteristics, or it could be two different groups of people, one with one characteristic and one with the other. What do you see? And by the way, it's repeated at least twice. I think one of them is mentioned three times. What do you see is a characteristic of these people? Particularly in Isaiah, he uses women. So. Okay, there's the careless group. And what's the other group? Oh, oh, I took your word. Sorry, Nancy. But there's another group. What's the other group? Okay, those that are at ease. And so our two groups are the comfortable, the at ease, quiet, they're secure, Kurt may be right. Maybe it's because they're rich. So they're saying, hey, I'm fine. And so we have this comfortable group. They're living comfortably. And then the other group is the careless group or the complacent group. 
and they basically are hoping and trusting in their circumstances. And I can say that because of what the prophet then gives them in the way of comments and commands. In fact, we'll start with the commands. So we have these two groups. If you look at verse 9, it says, Ye women that are at ease, and that follows up, ye careless daughters. And then verse 10, ye careless women. And then verse 11, ye women that are at ease. And then at the end of that verse, ye careless ones. And so he repeats it over and over again. Um, I think most of us may have had children. And sometimes as we would deal with our children, we would feel like they aren't getting it. And so we repeat it. That's what I feel Isaiah is kind of doing here. May I have your attention, please, you careless people, or careless women. If you're not listening, careless people, I want your attention, please. That's kind of the way that this strikes me. And then he gives them some commands. What are the commands that he gives these two groups of people? And I just lump them all together, right? I'm not certain it's two groups, it might be one, but these are both attitudes these people have. What does he tell them to do? Bobby? Take heed to my word. Okay, take heed to his word. So hear and listen is one of the first ones. I heard someone over here, but I didn't see him. Terry Ann, did you? Oh, okay, they stole your thunder probably. It says at the end of 11, put on sackcloth. Okay, they're going to lament or have sackcloth, but he doesn't really give them the command to do that, whereas he does tell them, hey, listen, hear what I'm saying, listen. He says some other things too. Nancy and then Bobby. Okay, so tremble is one of those, which be afraid would be another way we would think about that. And then there was one last one that I kind of gleaned out of this that might not be as obvious. Go ahead. Okay, the, uh, the way I saw that wasn't you know, quite the same as what you're seeing, and I'm, I'm not saying I saw it right, but I saw it as part of the lamenting process. If you think about it, uh, what do they do? They rent their garments or they take off what they normally wear and they put on sackcloth. Um, obviously, there's an aspect of taking off any mask or any idea of, of falsehood that we have and becoming real with what, what God's brought upon us. And so, you know, I just didn't see it in that quite that light, but I just kind of looked at it as, okay, he's telling them. And, and part of that has to do with really the last one that I saw in there. And that was the fact that he gives them a because, and the because is because they're going to be troubled for many years. What he's highlighting to them, you're careless or carefree, you're at ease, you're comfortable, and you're depending on the harvest and everything that you're normally used to, and that's going to go away. Bill? Is that the line there that uh, the gathering will not come? Is that what that's... Uh, Help me know where you're looking at on the gathering will not come. Okay, I see it now in verse 10. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's the idea. If you look at verse 10, Bill points out 
another verse that, that matches that. It says, for the vintage shall fail, which is basically saying you're going to have crop failure and the gathering shall not come. You're not going to be able to harvest because the crop failed. And so what they've been, been depending on, and one of the commentaries pointed out that harvest time usually is a very joyous time. Um, not being a farm boy and growing up on a farm, I don't relate quite as well to that, but I know Bill was on a farm and several others. Um, and I'm sure when the harvest was brought in and over, they were like, whew, glad that's over. Um, but there's also a time of rejoicing because they have plenty. And we think in our terms of what our country's like, which is very industrialized, but for the farming community, which back in that time was pretty much almost everyone, when they brought in the crop, they enjoyed that and there was a time of joy. And one of the commentaries felt that was why he mentioned the women because they especially would see the, the reaping of the harvest as a time of joy. So he tells them, listen, or to hear, to give ear, to tremble, and they need to be troubled. There's many years ahead that the harvest isn't gonna be there. And then he makes some comments, some comments about what they're gonna go through and how that's going to be. What, what do you see in the way of comments they makes about this people? Why are they going to lament? That might be an easier way of putting that question. Around verse 12, they're to lament or they will be lamenting. Why is that going to be the case? Nancy? I think it's because they're going to be hungry. Okay, because they're going to be hungry. If you look at that verse, it comes after the, the passage that Bobby pointed out where they're to strip you and be bare and gird sackcloth upon your loins. And then it says, they shall lament for the teats, for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine. Um, the first phrase there, we would say today, they would lament for the breasts. And I had a little bit of trouble you know, trying to figure out, well, what does that have to do with it? It either ties to lamenting or it ties to the, the fruitful field and the or the pleasant field and the fruitful vine and one commentary did at least mention that they thought tied to lament that the practice of you know going topless but having just sackcloth on their uh, lower body on their loins and below i just was having a hard time connecting the dots with that idea and the reason being is i think of godly women that I've known through the years and I don't see when they're in grief them giving up modesty so I had a little difficulty with that but if you think about it Kirk go ahead and I think that's where that commentary was coming from but you know, when I look at the King James and my looking at it, I looked at the fact they nursed. You know, they didn't have a formula back in the day. Um, I kind of tie it, you know, at least in my logic uh, and reading of the King James, I tie it more to there's going to be a famine all across the way, including it's going to affect the toddlers that normally nurse. Um, I don't have any indigestion, whichever way you want to see that. I just had a harder, a longer bridge to cross to try and span to lamenting than I did to the idea of famine. Both are true. 
as far as they're going to be lamenting. It's going to cause them serious anguish. And we've seen through history that has already happened to the Jewish people. And so the first thing that the prophet commands them is lament because there's no nourishment or harvest but rather it's going to be replaced with thorns and briars. Um, I mentioned once before that I even have trouble growing grass. The only thing I don't have trouble growing is stickers. <laughs> and I find out how well I've done at growing stickers when I watch one of my daughter's dogs and they come in and there's stickers throughout the house. And yet I've tried my best not to grow stickers, but to grow grass. Well, the prophet is telling them in place of the harvest, you're going to have thorns and thistles and briars. And so there's a reason for their lament. There's a famine. And I think a lot of that comes because they can't tend to the harvest because God has used Assyria or Babylon to come in and we get the benefit of history seeing what has happened in those cases. What else is going to cause them to lament? Okay, the houses and palaces not only are not going to be joyous, they're going to be deserted. They're going to be forsaken. Animals are going to live in these abandoned dwellings. And so as we think about Isaiah's starting out describing the millennial kingdom, and he says, but it's not going to get there until we go through the thrashing, the basically God chastening and, and basically judging his people for their sin. Bill? That sounds like he's describing the Assyrians as actually driving the people out of the land and it becoming a desolate land with no, no people there even. Yeah. And that definitely happened with the northern kingdom. The Assyrians were the ones that came and wiped out the northern kingdom. Jerusalem, which is in the southern kingdom, they were fearful of the exact same thing, but they had no clue about Babylon. And Babylon was the, the nation that God used for the southern kingdom. But the northern kingdom, you're right on track. Yeah, they were fearful because of Assyria. And once Assyria wiped out the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom had that same, same fear. So, so that brings us through all this bad stuff. And by the way, I don't think any of us, I don't think any of the Jews, when they stand before Messiah, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, is going to say, I didn't deserve it. I think they'll say, I really did deserve what you brought. In fact, um, we usually deserve more than what God gives us in the way of chastening. And so the prophet tells them there's a Messiah coming. There's going to be a kingdom that's run by righteousness. But before that happens, there's going to be this time of lamenting, this time of famine this time of being taken from our houses and palaces because they're taken into captivity. Most historians and commentators, I think, have the Assyrians in view, particularly Sennacherib was the king that was considered one of the most cruel of the Assyrians. So that then brings us to a transition. The word until in verse 15, until the Spirit be poured upon us from on high. And so the remainder of the chapter 
focuses on the millennial kingdom again. So he starts with the millennial kingdom and he contrasts the righteous with the unrighteous and that only the righteous are going to be the ones ruling. He then says there's going to be a famine and, and basically there's going to be war because you're going to be taken from your homes. And then God pours out his spirit to bring in this millennial kingdom. Now, you and I enjoy the fact that at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was poured out, but it was poured out upon the church. It wasn't poured out just upon the Jews. Um, the Bible doesn't give us, at least I don't see it, all the details of how the Holy Spirit will be working in the millennium. We're used to how the Holy Spirit works in the church age, the time that we're living. It's different than what the Old Testament was. How was the Holy Spirit working in the Old Testament? Yes, ma'am. Okay. He did not indwell all the people. He did bring about salvation of the people. He was at work. But as he might want a particular king or prophet to do something, the Holy Spirit would come upon that person for that task. And there was no indication that he stayed on that person forever and ever. Amen. Um, whereas for the church, when we accept Jesus to be our Savior and our Lord, at that point... The Holy Spirit indwells us. And in John 16, it tells us what the Holy Spirit does. The millennium, in fact, take the rapture. The rapture takes the church out. The Holy Spirit no longer is going to operate the way he is right now. It's going to be more, I think, like the Old Testament economy of how the Holy Spirit worked. Uh, there's no indication that the Holy Spirit will indwell those that accept Jesus to be their Savior and Lord. So here doesn't though the Holy Spirit remain with us when we come back and rule and reign with Christ? He never leaves us. I believe so, yes. The difference we will have in the millennium is that we don't have the sin nature. So we can fully follow the leading and guiding of the Holy Spirit as we help and minister yep. on earth to, to those. And, and I think you're, you're right, but what I was looking at was the ones that don't have a glorified body during that time. Um, but John's right, we won't lose the Holy Spirit. In fact, that's how I think we'll be able, along with not having a sin nature, having the Holy Spirit that continues to indwell us guides us into how we should rule and reign with Christ. There's going to be a final rebellion at the end of the millennial time. So I'm thinking at that point the choice is being made by those who are on earth. So I, I agree, I don't think the Holy Spirit will indwell someone during the millennial time. So now, the difficulty is this verse. This verse basically says, until the Holy Spirit be pour, poured upon us from on high, which suggests that the Jewish people somehow will have the Holy Spirit poured out upon them. Um, I'm going to be very transparent, honest, and candid. I don't know how that's going to work. I think I can agree with John. I think for the church, it's pretty easy to say that the Holy Spirit's going to be more alive in our life than ever before because we won't have a sin nature. But this is talking, I believe, about those that still don't have a glorified body, that it's talking specifically about the Jews. So rather than trying to explain all that, because I can't, I figured, let's look at what the effect is. God's kingdom is going to become, here on earth, the millennial kingdom. 
And there's going to be certain characteristics about that kingdom, even though I can't tell you exactly how the Holy Spirit's going to be operating in that time period. I just know our time period and the Old Testament were different. So what's going to happen when God's Spirit is poured out upon the people going into the millennium? Okay, so it's not going to be business as usual. There's a wilderness, which we really described in the previous verses. If you look at it, Israel is made into a wilderness because of war and famine. It's going to be a fruitful field. And if you think about it, in the Old Testament, many times God refers to Israel as his vineyard. And it's supposed to be a fruitful one, but instead it gives wild fruit. Well, here, when the millennium comes, this wilderness is going to turn to a, a, a fruitful field. And notice the phrase at the end of 15, it's going to be counted for a forest. One of the things that gets pointed out routinely is the forest of Lebanon was considered you know, just this strong, um, beautiful, you know, marvelous forest where they would get wood and things. Well, it's also been used to describe the enemies of Israel. They're strong. Their battle array looks ma- amazing and magnificent. And so... God's saying here that his people, which had been put into being a wilderness, is going to become at some point a fruitful field, and it's going to be viewed as strong and magnificent. Why? Because Messiah is ruling and reigning there, not because they are particularly strong, but because their Messiah is What else is going to happen? There's going to be justice in the land. Okay, there's going to be justice in the land. I put judgment, but justice is another word. And it reaches the remote places. Notice it shall dwell in the wilderness. And so if you think about it, the areas that are inhabited are going to become fruitful. But even the remote places, God's justice and judgment is going to be in the land. And then the last one, which kind of goes hand in hand with it, is righteousness is going to permeate wherever people live. And so when the millennial kingdom comes, and as we already described, the church is going to rule and reign with Christ. And we're going to have glorified bodies. We're not going to have the sin nature. And so God's justice and judgment is going to be everywhere because his church is going to be everywhere as his governing body throughout the land. And there's going to be righteousness, which then brought up another interesting question, which Isaiah answers. What is the work and impact of God's righteousness? Not self-righteousness, but true righteousness. What's going to happen because of righteousness? Okay, the first and foremost, there's going to be peace. If we think about Jesus, our Savior, he went through God's judgment on our behalf. And one of the first things that we hear about in Romans when it talks about that is we now have peace with God. And so God's righteousness as it permeates is going to bring about peace. I don't remember the statistic. You've probably heard it, many of you. But in all the years that mankind has inhabited this earth, it's a relatively short time where there hasn't been fighting or war. Um, 
I, I don't even think it's hundreds of years, I think it's less than that. When you consider that this world is roughly 6,000 years old, and there's, even if it was 100 years of where there wasn't war going on or fighting going on, it just shows how lacking our world is in peace. What else is going to happen when that righteousness Mickey? Well, peace, okay. Comfort. I had the word quietness. And so uh, there's, there's times where comfort and quietness is a welcome thing. Um, sometimes when I've went through some of the medical issues like Kurt's about to face, um, and things simmered down, I told Brenda, I said, boring is good. <laughs> Don't really care to have much excitement in the medical area. You know, I prefer it to be boring there, quiet and, and calm and uh, peaceful is a good thing. And, uh, you know, I tell her, I said, excitement is overrated. There's a place for boring that's really good. So here, it's not going to be a boring type of quietness. It's going to be an enjoyable quietness um, that's, that's there. I'm drawing a blank. My mind's not going to a verse. I, I'll tell you the verse that comes to mind when you when you said that though is um, better to dwell in the corner of a house than with a contentious woman or something like that. Um, and ladies, I apologize, but that that just I think of the fact there are people that disrupt our quietness. Um, and my wife's not one of them, so don't think that I remembered that because of my wife. If anything, she has been a, a blessing through the years. And then there's safety. And then there's security. Trust in the neighborhood. There's some neighborhoods in our country where I would not want to live. Um, yeah, in fact... Um, where I live, sometimes there's more excitement than I really care to see, where police are chasing a car down the road. And, you know, I think one time there were like seven police cars just a couple blocks down from our house. And I'm like, mm, I'm not sure this is real comfortable having things like this going on. Were they after you? <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, not that time. <laughs> Kurt's quick. He picked up on that. The, the point is, we're going to have a neighborhood. In fact, I remember as a boy, my parents moved to Cocoa in 1972. And they bought my brother and I bikes. And we rode our bikes all up and down around Cocoa and Rockledge and that area. There is no way I would let one of my grandkids ride around in Palm Bay, much less some of the areas we were riding around <clears throat> today. And the reason is all the bad things that you hear about happen also in our neighborhoods now. It's not just the big cities, it's happening in Palm Bay, Melbourne. Uh, I remember a time when the news out of Orlando was always about all the crime in Orlando and never about Palm Bay and Melbourne. Now we seem to get more than our fair share of, of news time. All of that, when Messiah comes, is going to be done away. Now, if you look at the last two verses of the chapter, 
We've covered God's righteousness, what his kingdom is going to be like. He says, when it shall hail coming down on the forest and the city shall be low in a low place. Blessed are you that sow beside all the waters and send forth thither the feet of the oxen and the ass. I read that and I'm like, I don't get it. How does it relate? And so rather than ask you how it relates, I'm going to share with you after much reading and getting help. The first thing that you notice is it talks about hail coming down on the forest. And I mentioned to you how the forest ties to Lebanon and, and the, such magnificent you know, source of wood, but also many times it referred to the enemies of Israel. And so here it's saying that when God's kingdom comes into to being, when the millennial kingdom comes, God's judgment is going to come down upon the enemies of Israel. That's the illustration that this hail coming down on the forest is meant to provoke in the, the hearer. Um, it wasn't intuitively obvious to me. Um, but most of the commentaries you know, were in pretty good agreement on this. And then the city is always pretty much a reference to Jerusalem. That's the city of God. And the highlight here is both Israel's enemies, the forest, and Israel, the city, are humbled when God acts. When the millennial kingdom comes into being, and if you think about Revelation where it describes Jesus' second coming, everyone is going to be in awe. Everyone's going to be humbled by the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and his church that comes with him when he comes back to this earth. And then the second part of that is God's blessing in verse 20 is going to provide so much harvest and it's in direct contrast of this time where there won't be a harvest where there'll be desolate palaces, desolate homes in stark contrast when the king of kings comes everything's going to be set back to like it was in the Garden of Eden the earth is going to yield so much that they aren't going to get upset if the animals are in the crops eating some of the food because there's going to be so much food there that it's not going to matter. And so the millennial kingdom, he's contrasting it to there's a time of judgment first, but when God's spirit is poured out upon the people, righteousness is going to permeate, justice is going to permeate, we see so many times we'll hear things on the news where justice convicts the wrong person or in some cases sets the bad person free. That's not going to happen when Jesus rules and reigns. That brings us to chapter 33. And we're going to look very quickly at this. We'll read just the first five verses. It says, Woe to thee that spoilest, and thou wast not spoiled, and dealest treacherously, and they dealt not treacherously with thee. When thou shalt cease to spoil, thou shalt be spoiled, and when thou hast made an end of dealing treacherously, they shall deal treacherously with thee. O Lord, be gracious unto us. We have waited for thee. Be thou their arm every morning. Our salvation also in a time of trouble. At the noise of tumult, the people fled. At the lifting up of thyself, the nations were scattered. And your spoil shall be gathered like the gathering of the caterpillar. As the running to and fro of locusts shall he run upon them. The Lord is exalted, for he dwelleth on high. He hath filled Zion with judgment and righteousness. And so there's that theme again 
that we left in the previous one. I wanted to read this because there's two questions that I think if we answer them today, fine. If not, it'll give you some homework to think about. What is different about this woe and all the other woes? What is different about this woe and all the other woes? And we covered all the others. And then the second question is why? Why is it different? Anyone want to speculate? Woe to thee that spoilest, and thou wast not spoiled, and dealest treacherously, and thou dealt not treacherously with thee, and they dealt not treacherously with thee. What's different about this woe? Yes, sir. The heading in my Bible over this section says, Distressed Jerusalem Delivered. Distressed Jerusalem delivered. Okay. So, how does that compare to the other woes? And by the way, I'm not denying what Paul said. He's, he's right on with the heading that he read. Jerusalem is delivered from their distress. Is it more personal? For some people, yeah. The treacherous ones, it's more personal. <laughs> Okay. Anyone remember the other woes? Well, that might help us. Okay. Interesting. The other woes were against Israel, against the Jewish people. Who's this woe against? Whoa, I heard a lot of different answers there. I heard Assyria at the end. Would you? Assyria. Enemies of Israel, okay, that, that one covers a lot. And so, if you look at the difference, woe to the crown of pride, drunkards of Ephraim, that's Israel. Woe to Ariel, that's Jerusalem. Woe to the, those fools with atheistic attitudes. The fools with atheistic attitudes were still the Jewish people. Woe to the rebellious children. That's definitely Israel. Woe to them that do not trust God for help. It's Israel. Then the last one. Woe to the spoiler or destroyer. You can plug in Assyria. You can plug in the enemies of Israel. And so the answer of it being more personal it's more personal for the destroyer. All the others were more personal for Israel. We saw this when we were going through kings. God uses a kingdom to bring judgment to Israel. Mm -hmm. Then when they do what he, you know, when they do it, he ends up destroying them because they did it. Yep. And he's righteous in all his works. He uses a more ungodly nation to spank or chastise or punish or judge, whatever word you want to plug in there, his people. But then they don't get away with it. He judges them for what they did toward his people. Now, that brings up the second question. The first question was, What's different about this woe? This woe is toward the enemies of Israel. All the other woes were to Israel. So why is it different? Why, after all these other woes, is the woe switched to now it's woe against the enemies? That's exactly right. Bobby basically hit the nail on the head. It's because now they're trusting in the true Messiah. Look down at verse 2. O Lord, be gracious unto us. We have waited for thee. Be thou their arm every morning, our salvation also 
in the time of trouble. All the other times with those other woes, God is correcting Israel because what are they trusting? Themselves, their circumstances, Egypt, their political savvy on getting alliances with other people. Now their focus is where it needs to be. They're trusting God. I like Isaiah 26, 3. It's a verse that as we stayed it, I finally memorized it. Isaiah 26, 3 says, Thou shalt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. That's the difference. This woe changes from being toward Israel to Israel's enemies, and there's only one difference, what they're trusting. Begs the question to us today, regardless of what we're going through, good, bad, or indifferent, where's our trust? We trust God to save us. That's when we prayed and became his child. But do we trust him in how we live our lives? How we react to the circumstances around us? And by the way, I think most of us would say, well, I may pass that test occasionally, but I'm sure I failed some of the times too. God wants you and I, just like his people Israel, to put our whole trust in him, regardless of our circumstances and all the other things going on around us. Begs the question, you listen to politics, do you get your gut all in a twisted knot because you see evil prevailing? Who are you trusting? What are you trusting? It's not easy watching our country forsake God. That I agree with. But our trust needs to be in God regardless of what our culture is doing, what our country is doing. That was added. That wasn't in my original notes. But I think Isaiah is saying the same thing to Israel. Who are you trusting? Yep. So, Well, let's close with a word of prayer. We're out of time. I can hear they're getting restless in the hallway. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for sending Jesus that we might have peace with you and forgiveness of our sin. Help us, God, to trust you more, even when everything around us screams not to. We pray now as we go into this worship service, we would exalt Christ highly and honor him. In Jesus' name, amen.